Welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge. As always, we got Dr. Jack here with us. We're going to be covering four papers this week. The first paper we have was summarized by Elizabetta. It was titled, Investing in U.S. 10-Year Yields with News Sentiment. Uh, academic literature has documented a new sentiment effect on equities. The authors investigate the following research question. Does the sentiment derived from media content impact bond market investors? And before we hit that question though, Jack, uh, what is the new sentiment effect? Well, well, new sentiment is just a, a way to try to measure whether or not you know, the financial press or the media it has a positive or negative, you know, view on markets or news, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? So the effect, it's been tested in equities, but this paper is interesting because it actually tests whether or not, you know, the prevailing news and sentiment in the market can actually impact treasury and bond markets. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And then, so, so does that sentiment derived from media content impact bond market investors? Yeah, so what they look at, um, they also combine this, to be clear, with some uh, economic variables. So it's a little hard to con- like understand how much is driven by sentiment, how much is driven by some economic. Mm-hmm. But what they look at is basically a trading strategy whereby you can do allocate towards two assets. One is seven to ten year treasuries. The other is like three-month cash, mm-hmm. right? So ba- basically, do you take duration or do you stay in cash? Um, And they use new sentiment alongside some economic variables. And what they find is it's actually a pretty profitable strategy whereby you tilt towards one or the other as opposed to a simple 50-50 allocation. And so like a good example, just to give you a case, is, you know, in 2008, obviously, you know, longer duration treasuries did pretty well. So this model must have shifted towards that because the annual return in that year was pretty good. The second paper we have is from Larry Swedro, titled, Volatility Targeting Improves Risk-Adjusted Returns. Larry starts the paper with, there's a large body of research, including the 2017 study, Tail Risk Mitigation with Managed Volatility Strategies by Anna Dreyer and Stefan Stefan Hubrick, that demonstrates, while past returns do not predict future returns, Past volatility largely predicts future near-term volatility. Volatility is persistent. It clusters. High or low volatility over the recent past tends to be followed by high or low volatility in the future. Evidence that past volatility predicts future volatility has been found not only in stocks, but also in bonds, commodities, and currencies. That's pretty robust. Campbell R. Harvey contributes to the literature on managing volatility with their study, The Impact of Volatility Targeting. Jack, what was the setup on this study? Yeah, so the setup is just talking about you can run strategies whereby you may target a specific volatility Mm -hmm. level, right? And so one of the things you kind of outlined it in that paragraph that you read, but, you know, I'll highlight it's, uh, I think it's figure two in the paper. Essentially what it shows, um, maybe figure one, but what it shows, and we'll show it here, is it takes the quintile of previous uh, stock volatility periods, right? So you look, look back and you quintile 
uh, periods onto higher low volatility into quintiles. And then you look on the left side, like on the panel A, we look and look for future returns. What you see is past volatility has very little effect on future returns, right? Mm -hmm. There's almost no relationship. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at past volatility and its effect on future volatility, mm -hmm. you see that when there was high volatility in the past, there appears to be high volatility in the future. Mm. So that's one thing that this paper outlines at the outset is kind of what you mentioned there, that volatility seems to be persistent. Gotcha. Okay. And, and then what's the overall effect of volatility targeting? So what they show uh, in this paper is, you know, by... By, by using some methods right, to target like a specific volatility, um, you can improve your overall Sharpe ratio. Mm -hmm. right? And so this is shown kind of in like table three. So you know, in the first row, they kind of show, basically it would be like if you just invested in equities and you had a 10% vol target, so you're like 52% invested. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then it shows below the Sharpe ratio improves using these numerous methods. Now, something that's kind of interesting in that paper is if you look in the notional exposure row, your notional exposure is actually on average higher sometimes in a volatility targeted strategy. And that may be a little confusing at first, but what happens is when volatility is low, we already know it's kind of persistently low like from that first uh, table. So you actually take more equity volatility. You take on more equity risk when vol is low. And then when vol is high, you dial it back. Right. So the net effect is you actually, uh, using these methods, take on slightly more vol, more equity risk. Um, and, and by doing so, it showed in the paper uh, an improvement in Sharpe ratio. Right. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, okay, so then, then Larry showed some further evidence from a pipe paper titled Tail Risk Mitigation with Managed Volatility Strategies. Larry has this great line from the paper in other words as with value investing or any investment strategy managed volatility strategies often require great patience and discipline to recap their benefits so what's the summary then here and what other takeaways should we have in the second paper yeah so uh the the summary there kind of highlighting larry's i think point um, and I'll show you, it's a paper, it's a figure from the paper, which we're going to add in here, um, shows that if you vary your starting point throughout time, you know, compared to the benchmark, your Sharpe ratio can actually lag just the standard benchmark for long periods of time, mm -hmm. right? So the kind of common examples, like more recently, um, you know, the benchmark would have had a much higher Sharpe ratio than a, a vol managed volatility strategy, at least the one outlined in that paper. Mm -hmm. So just highlights that you know when you do anything specific to um, you know when you're different than the market, you you can have periods when you can underperform. Yeah, yeah. So the simple advice is always whatever you do, stick with it. So find something that you believe in, research it, but then you you got you got to stick with it. Um, Okay, so then we're on to the next paper, also from Larry. We're kind of catching up on some papers here. But uh, this paper was titled Volatility Anomalies, IVOL, and VOL of VOL. Larry opens this post with two of the more interesting puzzles in finance are related to volatility. Stocks with greater idiosyncratic volatility have produced lower returns, and stocks with higher uncertainty about risk 
as measured by the volatility of expected volatility, vol of vol, underperform stocks with low uncertainty. These are anomalies because greater risk should be compensated with higher expected returns. Um, we'll examine the literature on these two anomalies. So Jack, for starters, what is idiosyncratic volatility? Yeah, so idiosyncratic volatility, one way to think of it is it's, you know, how much volatility is specific to a specific asset, if you can pull out like the passive benchmark. Um, so I'll actually send, I'll send a link. Uh, we wrote a post on our site a couple of years ago, might've been 2014, 2015, uh, basically with an Excel file calculating the idiosyncratic volatility. Yep. And so technically what it is, you know, well, there's many ways you can measure it. One way to measure it is you run a regression. Right, so you come up with the beta, then you get expected returns, actual, and then you have what's called the residuals. Mm. And if you take the standard deviation of the residuals, that's one way in which you can measure idiosyncratic volatility. So I'll send the link to uh, that Excel file on the video. Okay, and then what did, what did this paper look at specifically then? So what this paper looked at was, again, so it is anomalous, because, you know, again, volatility, the thing is, if you have higher volatility, higher idiosyncratic volatility, essentially one could say, if you believe standard deviation is a measure of risk, that you should expect higher returns, right? You're taking on more risk as measured by standard deviation. Therefore, one should expect higher returns. However, it's an anomaly because they actually have lower returns. Mm -hmm. So what this paper showed and what it tried to test was to say, hey, why would this anomaly exist? Is there a way we can try to figure it out? And so what they do is they use their mispricing measure, which actually Wes and I have in our, with Steve Crawford in one paper, uh, we use slightly different, but they use, it's like 11 variables. And their whole idea is that they believe that the eyeball effect is mainly found in the most overpriced securities, right? Because if something's overpriced and it has high eyeball, the only way you could take advantage of that is you would have to like short it, right? But shorting can be hard, right? And so if you look, and the results are in the, uh, the figure we'll show here from the paper, right? You see that in the more overpriced securities on the left, right? You see a very negative return to these very high eyeball firms. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the stocks that are underpriced, maybe like value stocks, right? Uh, and I wouldn't say necessarily value because of the way they measure, but at least the way the mispricing measure in this paper on the ones that are under uh, underpriced, yep. right? You see the eyeball effect is smaller. Mm. And so what this could be is that they found that this effect exists in overpriced stocks. And actually it could still exist because there could be limits to arbitrage. These could be stocks that are hard to short. Um, you know, shorting's difficult, has a lot of cost. Yep. So it could actually persist in the future. So yeah. I think that was a neat finding from this paper. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. In interesting that a lot of this continues to circle back to things we already know, mm -hmm. um, but but kind of in a, in a bit more of a convoluted way, we're stepping out a little further. Um, okay, so is is this a robust anomaly in your opinion? So I would say volatility. Um, I believe th there's a lot of papers on it. I think volatility is something that is worthwhile and is probably, I don't know if it's an anomaly, right? Because that was the original... Cap M issue, right? High vol, like high vol stocks should have higher returns than they do. Mm -hmm. Low vol stocks should have lower returns, but they have higher ones, right? I, I do think it's something that will probably persist. 
Interesting. Okay. The last paper we have uh, is on the topic of ESG. This was written by Tommy, and it's titled, Things to Consider for ESG Portfolio Construction. What's the big summary on this? Yeah, so just high level, right? You know, within ESG, you're essentially, there's multiple ways in which you could do it, right? Mm -hmm. So this paper looks at kind of a multitude of measures, yep. right? So do you kind of just minimize it? minimize your exposure to it? Do you try to like exclude it? Yep. Um, and essentially what it finds is that depending on which method you use, you're gonna have more or less tracking error yep. relative to the index. Yep. So that's all I'd say, you know, within ESG, definitely when you build your portfolio, the construction is probably gonna matter and it's gonna have impacts on your tracking error relative to just like a passive benchmark. Yeah, 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 ESG's Sounds simple when you, but, but when you get into the weeds, right? If you own, uh, you want to exclude oil stocks, maybe. Well, that that's pretty simple. But what if you just want to own the 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 best oil stock that's the most ESG friendly and exclude the ones that are least ESG friendly, uh, and that'll that'll make your portfolio overall more ESG friendly, reduce tracking error because you still own the energy sector. Um, things like that are all considerations to take in mind. How, how are we going to build this? Um, all right. Well, that's what we've got this week for Compound Your Knowledge, and we'll see you guys all next week. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC, all rights reserved.